Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 25, Imaginings. We've answered more than a few hypothetical what-if questions in previous Dear Cheap Astronomy episodes. However, in this episode, we're going to deal with some issues that lie a bit closer to science fiction than the usual ones we get about hypothetical cosmologies. For example, this first one is about a dying race leaving a record behind for other space explorers to find. Except in this case, that dying race is us. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Is a Lagrange point a good place to keep a record of the history of Earth? This question is based on the premise that humankind, and presumably a large proportion of other megafauna on Earth, might be wiped out one day, perhaps by an asteroid impact. So, given the risk we face, wouldn't it be a good idea to store a record of the history of humanity somewhere. Somewhere that's out of harm's way? Well, if we really put our minds to it, we might soon develop the technology to defend Earth from such an asteroid impact. So perhaps our best plan is to try and stay alive, rather than diverting resources towards creating a lasting memento of ourselves. Of course, there are cynics who will suggest the best thing we can do is create a distant and unassailable storehouse of all the useful knowledge and technology we have developed so far, since we'll all probably die of a self-inflicted extinction event, long before an asteroid comes along. By this way of thinking, the proposed storehouse of all knowledge and wisdom is not so much for the benefit of passing aliens but for whatever evolved beings come next. Hopefully, the ecological niche we vacate will get filled by a species less prone to running about in mobs and firing guns in the air. But nah, sod that way of thinking. The survival of our species, and probably the survival of any species this planet is ever likely to produce, will always come down to a few, generally nameless, individuals who decide to do something sensible. There will always be an equal number of nameless individuals who decide to do something stupid or mean. But since you're probably listening to this on a smartphone and not in a post-apocalyptic bunker, it seems that the sensible people do generally win out at least on average, over long time periods. Anyway, putting all the rights and wrongs of humanity to one side, let's get on with answering your question. Exactly what we might put in a storehouse of all knowledge and wisdom is a bit beyond the scope of this podcast. Although it must be said that some mathematical proofs, a few groundbreaking architectural designs, and perhaps some gene-splicing techniques are going to be a lot more useful than Chuck Berry 
and whale songs. As we previously covered in Cheap Astronomy Podcast Episode 76, the Sun-Earth Lagrange points L4 or L5 would be the best spots to park our Earth storehouse. Objects at Lagrange points L1, L2 or L3 can sustain a station-keeping solar orbit with the Earth, but those points aren't stable. The spacecraft we currently have parked at L1 and L2 still need to fire their rockets now and again to stay in position. L4 and L5 are much more stable and could potentially harbour an Earth storehouse for a million years or so, although, over these time scales, the faint gravitational whisper of passing planets can still perturb something put there. So an automated once-in-a-hundred-millennia correction burn will still be required. This might prompt you to wonder why we don't park more spacecraft at L4 and L5 instead of L1 and L2. The problem is that L4 and L5 are both about 20 million kilometres from Earth, which is over one light minute, while L1 and 2 are just 1.5 million kilometres from Earth, which is only about five light seconds. So not only do you need more fuel to get to L4 and 5, but once you are there, the lengthy communication delay back to Earth creates its own problems. Mind you, if we just want to park a record of Earth's history out there, the communication delay isn't such a problem. But before we do that, we really, really should establish an Earth asteroid defense system. Because if it's not there when it matters, we will be history. And thanks, Janet. So there you go. If we're going to do something at L4 or L5, we should probably establish space colonies, which will happily sit in the Sun's Goldilocks zone for millennia. This may be a better move than just building libraries there. Although there's no reason why we couldn't do both. And now here's a question about one of science fiction's favourite plot devices. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Was Einstein just a science fiction killjoy for having ruled out warp speed and time travel? Humans are storytellers. It's how we make sense of the world. Our stories are generally based on whatever we know at the time, with a little imaginative elaboration mixed in. Older styles of fiction generally involve people or animals with exaggerated physical abilities or even magical abilities. Modern science fiction takes a similar approach to storytelling, but it draws in plot devices from science and technology. So in bygone days, Zod the Defiant flew over the mountain range on his winged chariot to avenge the sons of Vetrab by spewing down fire upon the evil city of Otrabian. These days, Luke Skywalker, a Rebel Alliance sympathizer, uses the Force to fire two proton torpedoes down the exhaust port of the Death Star, thereby thwarting the evil Empire's plans, at least until the next movie. 
But because astronomical scales are yet to become part of our daily lives, our modern stories are still told as though they were taking place on Earth, or at least within Earth-like dimensions. Luke is first seen operating within the Earth-like dimensions of Tatooine, which has an Earth-equivalent atmosphere and an Earth-equivalent gravity field. To allow Luke Skywalker to cross light years from his home planet to the scene of a battle with the Empire, the story employs a magical plot device, warp drive, which is about as plausible as flying over a mountain range on a winged chariot. After the scene-changing warp drive, Luke is then seen within the moon-like dimensions of the Death Star, in which he mostly runs around in corridors. Then there's another scene change to the fourth moon of Yavin, where the Rebel base is, and which also happens to have an Earth-equivalent atmosphere and an Earth-equivalent gravity field. And finally it's back to the Death Star again to torpedo that exhaust port. This is how we are used to telling stories on Earth. A bunch of stuff happened here, and then a bunch of stuff happened there. How the protagonists got from here to there isn't worth dwelling on. As for time travel, well, warp drive is time travel. If you're going to get up, have breakfast, then cross 100 light years to foil the evil empire schemes, before recrossing that 100 light year distance to get back home for dinner, then you just time traveled. You just did in a day what should have taken 200 years. The Star Wars story is actually full of time travel. For the plot to make sense, Luke Skywalker first has to receive information from 100 light years away, almost immediately, so that he knows to cross that 100 light years in order to deal with what's happening there. Furthermore, having warp-drived across 100 light-years to blow up the Death Star and then return home for dinner, Luke would be able to look through a very powerful telescope 100 years after his return and watch himself blowing up the Death Star, as the light from that distant event finally arrived at his home. Back in the real world, we are slowly becoming used to the idea of storytelling across astronomical distances. All of us space mission fans hold a big celebration at a spacecraft launch, after which we all get on with our lives, until six months later, when we hold another big celebration as that spacecraft approaches its destination, and we all watch with bated breath to see if the latest technique for a Mars soft landing actually works. With the Voyager missions, these disconnected episodes have come to span decades. Voyager 2 flew by Jupiter in 1979, and finally flew by Neptune in 1989. Then it just kept on going. In the next year or two, it will finally leave the heliosphere. Lots of people who weren't born when it launched will be able to celebrate this event. Like me! Once you start dealing with events that happen across astronomical distances, you need a new kind of storytelling that can deal with a very slow progression of the plot. So maybe it was Luke's great-grandfather that set off to investigate rumours that someone was setting up an empire. A journey which eventually delivered grandson Luke there, so Luke could destroy the Death Star, and then it was Luke's great-grandson 
who returned home to tell everyone the news. But wait, even that can't be right. There was all that business with Luke's father. Hmm. Maybe the truth is stranger than fiction. And thanks, Janet. Again. So there you go. Just when you thought Star Wars had everything but time travel... Nope. It's got time travel as well. And that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you want to go back to the future to ask something you'd previously thought about asking, but got distracted by a homicidal grandchild trying to create a causality paradox, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com or maybe do it the day after yesterday. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy. Dear Cheap Astronomy, I would like to blow up the Earth. What do you recommend as the best technique? Anyway, 